This is DW News live from Berlin. Fresh fears over Russia's military build-up at Ukraine's borders. NATO warns 30,000 Russian troops are headed to Belarus. Moscow says the West is stoking tensions. And Germany's Olaf Scholz plans talks with Vladimir Putin. Also coming up, have people had enough of Facebook? The sites reported a drop in daily users for the first time ever as parent company Meta sees shares sink a staggering 20%. Plus a taste of life beyond the pandemic, the UK and Denmark are lifting coronavirus restrictions in spite of high case numbers. And with just a day to go before the Winter Olympics in Beijing, we'll hear from our correspondent in the Chinese capital about the start of the competition and the bizarre life inside the Beijing bubble. I'm Rebecca Ritters. Welcome to the program. The U.S. is deploying some 3,000 troops to reassure its allies in Eastern Europe as tensions mount over Ukraine. The soldiers will not be sent to Ukraine itself, but to Germany, Poland and Romania, an attempt to deter Russia from launching an invasion. Meanwhile, NATO says Russia has deployed more troops and equipment to Belarus than at any time in the last 30 years. And Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz says he's planning to hold talks with Vladimir Putin after criticism for not taking a tougher stance on Russia. Olaf Scholz had been tight-lipped on Ukraine in recent weeks, at least in public. But on Wednesday evening, the new German Chancellor broke his silence in an interview with public broadcaster ZDF, announcing a trip to Moscow. Natürlich. Of course, I've spoken to the Russian president, and we're diligently preparing everything that's necessary. I'm about to travel to the US. I'll also go to Moscow very soon to continue talking about the relevant questions. And it's all about acting in a coordinated manner as far as the EU and NATO are concerned. Scholz will meet with US President Joe Biden in Washington on Monday. No date has been set yet for the Moscow trip. The German government says its goal is to avoid war in Ukraine by driving forward different diplomatic formats that also bring Russia to the negotiating table. Germany's refusal to send weapons to Ukraine has been criticised by Ukraine and by Germany's Western partners, but the government's response in the case of a Russian invasion would be clear, said Scholz. The situation is very serious and that's why it's so important that we're being very clear in what we say and what we prepare. Threatening the territorial sovereignty and integrity of Ukraine and attacking it militarily would have a very high price. And that price would include a potential stop to the controversial gas pipeline Nord Stream 2. For months, the German government called it a purely economic, not a political project. But now all options are on the table, says Scholz, and that implicitly includes Nord Stream 2. The biggest opposition party in Germany's parliament, meanwhile, considers Scholz's trip to Moscow long overdue. In an interview with DW, the CDU welcomed the decision by American President Joe Biden to send further troops to Europe since the escalation was not driven by NATO. No, we should ask Russia why they deploy more than 100,000 troops. And by the end of February, more than 150,000 troops. 
about 60% of their armed land forces. This is escalatory. And it's quite clear that we Europeans are really nervous and we see this as an escalation without any need. The Russian embassy in Berlin. Moscow's officially not made a decision yet, but the pressure on the German government to take on a more active role is growing. Well, let's speak now to Gustav Gressel, a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Mr Gressel, thanks very much for joining us. Now, pressure is mounting on Chancellor Scholz to take more action. He's now headed to Moscow. What will that achieve? That's a good question because, uh, I mean, the interview that you have cited before, it could have come from a yes minister show. Uh, he didn't really outline what was were his plans, uh, what he wanted to achieve and which were the lines he, he will press Putin towards. I mean, uh, we can roughly guess that it will be about sanctions, that it will, it will be about the revival of the Normandy format, but we actually do not know any details. Now, Germany has consistently refused to send defensive weapons to Ukraine, citing historical reasons and frustrating its allies on both sides of the Atlantic. Has Germany's approach been the wrong move? Yes, um, and it was also very badly justified. I mean, the problem is, or the problem for German policymakers is that there is no domestic consensus on this and there's no parliamentary majority. And that is something people would understand. Uh, but if you sort of bring in history and say it's our historic responsibility uh, not to arm a country that has suffered uh, one of the worst uh, from Nazi occupation and where sort of the Einsatzgruppen uh, and the SS has done a tremendous toll to the local population, uh, this is ignorant. And that, of course, has, has caused much more harm than the statements of other countries who do not deliver weapons, but remain to be silent on history. In your opinion, what should Germany be doing differently? Well, again, starting from the rhetoric, uh, also one of the mistakes is, and here he's been pretty much repeating Merkel, not to talk to the public on what's at stake and what to do. You need, if you're a politician, at a certain point, mobilize your public to follow you. Um, Merkel has never discussed important decisions. The, the thing was, she was in charge for so long that pretty much everybody could predict what's going to be the red line and what not. Now, for example, Scholz not communicating what actually on which side he stands on various subtopics and issues is making people more nervous because they don't know him yet, because they don't know what the new government's lines actually would be. And then, of course, they open up the space for a misinterpretation, but also for disinformation that has been spread, trying to denounce the German government or discredit it. Another key issue that Germany is all very involved with in this issue is, of course, uh, the Nord Stream 2. It's another issue that's been ruffling the feathers of allies. Germany says the gas pipeline is on the table for sanctions if Russia does indeed attack. Do you think Germany is serious about that? Well, they have been saying that consistently now, and I think that is a consensus reached uh, with Washington on the issue. Also, Merkel promised that to the Americans and they pretty much can't move themselves out of their old commitments. Uh, the, the little caveat I have on that uh, is that the Germans still think that an all-out attack on Ukraine is unlikely and that the main target of the Russian war rattling is actually the West to, to pressure out uh, concessions from NATO and from from Washington on on other demands, uh, not only Ukraine. Uh, and here, sort of, the Germans 
put Nord Stream 2 on the table, but they are pretty sure, or in their belief, they won't have to pull it. The interesting question, of course, will start if there is no war, um, or there's no further war than we witness now, which is the correct term. But uh, Nord Stream 2 is not yet certified. Uh, there are a lot of regulatory issues. The new Minister of Economy will uh, and has voted to take the concerns issued by the European Commission and by other European member states on the legal issues of Nord Stream 2 much more seriously. And that will lead to a further interesting debate inside Germany, because in the past these concerns have been utterly ignored. Uh, and the question on what to do with the pipeline as such Hence, will remain a very hot political potato even beyond the current crisis. Indeed. Gustav Gressel, thank you very much for your time. Gustav Gressel from the European Council on Foreign Relations. And Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is the latest world leader to travel to Kiev with an offer to mediate between Russia and Ukraine. Erdogan is now meeting with his Ukrainian counterpart, Volodymyr Zelensky. He's been attempting a tight balancing act by showing diplomatic support to Ukraine whilst avoiding damaging relations with Russia. The two leaders are expected to sign an agreement to manufacture Turkish drones in Ukraine. DW correspondent Nick Connolly is joining me now from Kiev. Nick, how serious is the Turkish offer to mediate between Ukraine and Russia being taken? Well, we've heard uh, voices from Moscow basically uh, saying that this is a, basically a no-starter uh, in recent weeks. Maybe that will change with time. I think for the Ukrainians for now, this is all about the optics of having this basically never-ending round of diplomatic visits here in Kiev showing that Ukraine and its future is a priority for Western nations and for big players in the region like Turkey. Um, I've spent a lot of time here in Kiev and I never remember this kind of intensity of diplomatic visits. So for now, I think the main takeaway will be those uh, TV pictures and that sense that Ukraine is not in its own, especially given NATO membership or membership in the EU is not on the cards anytime soon. So Ukraine trying to show that at least has this kind of diplomatic capital and that uh, it's being uh, taken seriously and the things going on here are being watched. Well, as we've mentioned, Turkey has been supplying drones to Ukraine, which Russia regards as highly provocative. Uh, can they be a fair broker under those circumstances? Well, I think the, the, the important thing to remember here is that while Turkey has supplied these drones, Turkey is also a NATO member, it is also uh, a NATO member that has uniquely bought Russian uh, missile defence systems, something that the United States were very unhappy about. So Turkey has shown in the past that it is willing to go against uh, the line put down by the administration in Washington DC, that it is willing to stray from most NATO partners in that sense. It also has very intense trade links, both with Ukraine and Russia. Um, but as you said, those drones have really spooked Russia, especially when Ukraine used them back in last autumn. Um, after an attack, as the Ukrainians say, from the pro-Russian separatists. That really has the power to change the balance of force that Ukraine has with those separatists, if not with the Russian army. All right, Nick, thank you. DW's Nick Connolly speaking to us from Kiev. Shares in Facebook owner Meta plunged by around 20% in after-hours trading on Wednesday, knocking a massive $200 billion off the company's value. Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg had warned investors in an earlier call that Meta expected first quarter revenues to decline due to competition from rivals such as TikTok. If the stock doesn't rebound uh, before trading resumes on Thursday, it will rank as the worst day in the company's 10-year stock market tenure and one of the biggest one-day falls of any company on record.
Well, let's discuss this further with Rob Watts from DW Business. Rob, thanks for coming in. Looks like I'm not the only one turning away from Facebook. What are they doing wrong? Well, they're losing young people, a demographic I'm sure you consider oh, yourself a, a, you a, a part of. <laughs> yeah, well, what Mark Zuckerberg says is that younger Facebook users are leaving the platform and they are going to the likes of TikTok and YouTube. TikTok in particular, which is growing in all the markets where Facebook has really been struggling. Europe... North America. I mean, you don't need to cry too much for Facebook. They're still getting 1.9 billion users each day. That's around a quarter of the planet's population still logging in each day. But for the very first time in its 18-year history, the number of users is going down. That's a big problem for them because the big way that they make their money is by advertising to those users. Now, Meta has various challenges when it comes to advertising. For example, companies are just advertising less at the moment. You know, there's supply chain problems that mean that companies already can't meet the demand from their customers, so they're not looking for more customers necessarily. Uh, but also, Facebook. Instagram, both owned by Meta, have struggled as a result of new privacy policies from the likes of Apple, which have meant that they're not as able to target their advertising. And that's something that advertisers really want to be able to do. Yeah, of course. Um, what's been the biggest impact then on Facebook or Meta, I should say? Well, you were just talking about this drop in share price, 22% in after-hours trading. That wipes $200 billion off the market capitalization of Meta. That is bigger than the economy of Greece. All wiped out in just a, a few hours. Yeah, it's, oh. it's massive. But we're talking about a company that just a few months ago was worth more than a trillion dollars. It's also spooked people who have invested in other social media networks, you know, like Twitter, another very big name, but text-based. Also, Snap and Pinterest all saw their share prices drop after this gloomy news from Facebook, because we are seeing a change in the landscape when it comes to social media. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're really seeing it changing very fast. Do Meta have a plan to keep up with progress with the way that things are going? Well, they clearly don't see Facebook as the way that they are going to move forward and, and stay with the times. And we know that because they changed their name at the end of last year. They changed it away from Facebook to Meta. And that new name gives you a hint about what they do see as the future. Mark Zuckerberg wants to be right at the forefront of creating the Metaverse, this you know, virtual reality world where we can meet with people, we can work, we can play, but also we can spend, spend, spend. But to make that come about, Meta, Mark Zuckerberg have got to spend, spend, spend as well. And it's going to cost billions of dollars, and that's money that they're not going to get any sort of return from for many years. However, that is where Meta sees the future. Well, I may be too young for Facebook, but I am too old for the sounds of that. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> Rob Watts, thank you very much for coming in to break it down. Well, let's get a roundup now of some of the other stories making world news today. Benny Gantz has become the first Israeli defence minister to visit Bahrain. It's the latest high-profile diplomatic trip since the country's normalised ties. Israel's reconciliation with several Arab nations breaks with decades of Arab League consensus against recognising Israel until it signs a peace agreement establishing a Palestinian state. New Zealand will begin to reopen its borders in phases starting at the end of February. Fully vaccinated citizens and visa holders from Australia will be allowed in first. Under the new rules, vaccinated citizens entering the country will be allowed to quarantine at home instead of at a managed isolation facility. 
Well, the United Kingdom and Denmark are among the first European countries to lift most of their coronavirus restrictions. Despite relatively high case numbers, their governments have decided the virus now poses less of a risk to citizens and to public health systems. But while many are hoping this could be a step towards life beyond the pandemic, some businesses are choosing to keep taking precautions and experts are warning the virus is still unpredictable. Packed pubs in London as people meet for a drink after work, just like they did before the pandemic. A cherished tradition, revived even as the coronavirus is still wafting through the air. If we're being eased into that now and it's, and it's working, I think it's, I think it's OK and I think it's happy. It's lovely coming out without having to move. <laughs> well, I've had my three vaccines, so, you know. Have you had COVID, SJ? I had it really early on right, so. and I'm fully vaccinated with my booster and I do feel very safe. Almost all restrictions in the UK have been lifted. The vaccination rate is high, especially among older people. New infections are decreasing and hospitals are admitting fewer patients, but some still urge caution. It has always demonstrated its ability to surprise us. Now, there are some that have this idea that in some way viruses tend to evolve to become less dangerous. That's actually not based on any good historical evidence. And it's perfectly possible that another one will come along that is more severe. Businesses are now free to write their own rules. At this hair salon, employees are supposed to still wear a mask. We're doing so to make you feel more comfortable. If you'd rather not, that's absolutely fine as a client. Sit down, don't wear a mask. Again, whatever makes you happy. The government is already planning its final phase. From mid-March, those with COVID-19 will no longer have to self-isolate. Meanwhile, in Denmark, restored freedoms are being welcomed too. Designers Søren Le Schmidt and his team are making final preparations before Fashion Week starts in Copenhagen, mask-free and test-free. I am so happy that we can come together again and celebrate fashion. Many Danes are relaxed about restrictions having been lifted a second time. More than 80% of the population is double vaccinated. More than 60% has had a booster. There are far fewer patients in hospital ICUs. But the number of new infections remains high. A problem for schools and daycare centers, which are struggling to stay open due to severe staff shortages. The government is warning people not to underestimate the virus in spite of the freedom. That's why, here too, many businesses are voluntarily maintaining some precautions. For more, I'm joined now by Paul Hunter in Norwich. He's a professor in medicine and infectious diseases at the University of East Anglia. Professor Hunter, welcome. Thanks for joining us. As we just heard, Denmark and the UK uh, have very high vaccination rates and that's why they're able to lift restrictions. But we've also been hearing all along that vaccination alone isn't enough. So how do those opposing viewpoints come together? Yeah, I mean, I think... One of the problems is that we're conflating both infection with actual severe disease. And and to a large extent, the role of vaccines is not that good at preventing infection, although it does prevent a substantial proportion of infections. But what vaccines are very good at 
and remain good at, even with new variants, is preventing severe disease, preventing hospitalizations and preventing deaths. And so at some point, we have to uh, accept that this virus isn't going away. It's going to be with us for decades to come. But hopefully we won't see the same, and I think it's unlikely that we'll see anywhere near the same severity of disease, the number of deaths and, and the number of hospitalizations that we have. And you know, so we ultimately have to come to some sort of balance, equilibrium with this virus because we will, the other coronaviruses typically cause infections every four years on average. So that is still a very high number of daily infections that we're likely to see for decades to come. But Indeed. we won't necessarily see the severe hospitalizations and deaths. Which is great news and obviously due to the vaccines. Now, Germany and Austria, for example, have far lower rates of vaccination than most of Western Indeed. Europe, really. Austria um, has just introduced a mandatory vaccination uh, system and many in Germany want the same here. Do, do you think the mandatory vaccinations are a good way out of the pandemic? Uh, personally, I, you know, I, think it, I think everybody should have the vaccine. I think... Uh, particularly healthcare workers. I think it's it's a moral obligation on, on if you're a healthcare worker to have the vaccine. But at the same time, personally, I'm uncomfortable with forcing people to have any form of medical intervention. And we've seen in, in the UK the, um, uh, the likely backpedaling of the government's decision to enforce vaccination in healthcare workers because to do that would actually ultimately cause more pressure through a loss of substantial numbers of staff. So, yeah, everybody should go out and get vaccines, but that doesn't mean to, if they are not yet vaccinated, but that doesn't mean to say I, I personally support compulsory uh, vaccination. All right, Professor Paul Hunter, thank you very much. Paul Hunter, Professor in Medicine, Infectious Diseases and Epidemics at the University of East Anglia. Emergency crews in Ecuador are continuing their search for people still missing after deadly flooding and mudslides in the capital, Quito. The country is observing an official period of mourning after at least 24 people were killed in what's being described as the heaviest rainfall in two decades. It's a major operation to clear the debris from destroyed buildings and blocked roads in Quito. And if possible, find any people trapped in homes and streets. It comes after intense rain which began on Monday and pounded the capital for more than 24 hours. It weakened a hillside and sent waves of mud flowing through the city. This man from Venezuela was in a small room he shared with other migrants when disaster struck. Suddenly the water hit us. The building broke in two and we ended up out the back. We fell down two floors and then we were swept away. A death announcement as residents face the reality of this sudden disaster. And the threat might not yet be over. Officials are not ruling out further landslides. Anything could still happen at the top part of the mountain. There could be more landslides. We'll continue monitoring the area with drones. This is all for our safety and to bring calm. 
But with the rain having subsided for now, rescue teams are grabbing the opportunity to search for survivors. Now to some breaking news just coming in. US President Joe Biden says the leader of the so-called Islamic State has been killed during a targeted raid in Syria by US forces. Reports say Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Karashi blew himself up as the US operation got underway in the northwest of the country. Biden plans to make a statement about the raid in the coming hours and we will, of course, bring you more on that story as and when it comes in. But now to sport, where Belgium skeleton racer Kim Mailmans has been taken to the Olympic Village in Beijing after an IOC intervention after she made an emotional appeal on Instagram. After a positive test on her arrival in the Chinese capital, Mailmans was initially taken directly into isolation, where she then returned three consecutive negative PCRs. In the video, she described what happened when she was picked up from the isolation unit. We thought... This meant I was allowed to return to the Olympic Village and will be treated maximum as a close contact. Um, on the way to the village, uh, we did not turn to the village, but the ambulance went to another facility where I am now. And after that video was published, the International Olympic Committee intervened to bring Mailmans into the Olympic Village, where she nonetheless remains isolated from her fellow competitors. DW Sports correspondent Jonathan Crane is currently in Beijing to report on the Winter Games. And earlier today, he sent us this message on the bizarre life inside the Olympic bubble. It's been a very surreal experience, like nothing I've experienced before. From the moment... We landed in Beijing on Tuesday. We were greeted at the airport by ground staff in hazmat suits, marshaled through every step of the airport from PCR tests to uh, customs and immigration. And then we had to wait in our hotel room for that all-important negative test result. Thankfully, I got it, which means uh, I can enter the bubble properly. But the bubble is effectively a city within this city. We can only be in the hotel or games venues. Special transport takes us in between. And as you can see behind me, the Olympic Stadium is there. This is as far as we can go within this media compound. We're gated off. We're watching the people on the other side. They're watching us. It's a really bizarre situation. DW's Jonathan Crane speaking to us from Beijing. You're watching DW News coming up next in DW News Asia. More on the mood in Beijing as we head toward that opening ceremony of the 2022 Winter Games. And the pain of training as Taiwan bolsters its military to counter the growing threat from China. Those stories coming up with my colleague Virash Banerjee after a short break. There'll be another news update at the top of the hour. And there's always a lot more world news as well as sport and business on our website, dw.com. I'm Rebecca Ritters. From me and the entire team here in Berlin, thanks very much for watching.
learn German with DW at any time and in any place using news, video novellas. Ich habe eine Zusage für das Praktikum. Songs to sing along to. Sie ist der Komparativ vom Superlativ. Man sieht sie oft in ihrem Duden vertieft. And interactive exercises. Everything is online, mobile and interactive. Learn German for free with DW. On the green Do you feel worried about the planet? Me too. I'm Neil, host of the On the Green Fence podcast, and to me it's clear we need to change. The solutions are out there. Join me for a deep dive into the green transformation. For me, for you, for the planet. People in trucks injured while trying to flee the city center. More and more refugees are being turned away at the border. Families fleeing bomb attacks in Syria. Police cracked down in Venezuela against demonstrators. People fleeing extreme drought. A raft carrying 200 people has sunk in the Aegean Sea. Around the world, more than 300 million people are seeking refuge. We ask why. Because no one should have to flee. Make up your own mind. DW. Made for Minds.